You have to care about your soldiers and those that you lead and not just fake care. You have to really care and learn about them. So I think if, and if people know that you care about them, then they are willing to do whatever they can for you. That's the 44th U.S. Army Surgeon General, Nadia West. Nadia is here to talk about commanding from the front lines, navigating teams through the Ebola crisis, and what it's like to lead a team through danger and uncertainty. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. Read our online healthcare publication called Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. And follow us on Twitter at OW Health Editor. Thanks and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to the Oliver Wyman Health Podcast. I'm Sam Glick, partner in the Health and Life Sciences practice here at Oliver Wyman. I'm excited to be here today with retired U.S. Army Lieutenant General and former Commanding General of the U.S. Army Medical Command, Nadia West. Nadia was the 44th uh, Army Surgeon General and she is also a member of the Tenet Healthcare Board of Directors. Nadia, thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks, Sam. It's really an honor to be with you today. Look forward to our discussion. So we're, we're talking. I know you're on the phone, and I'm uh, sitting here at home in San Francisco. We're talking uh, not from our usual locations, uh, given everything that's going on with COVID right now. Uh, but COVID isn't the first crisis you've seen, for sure. You've, you've been operating in crisis uh, for much of your career. Uh, what's your take on what's going on right now? Well, I tell you, it's really one where, um, you know, you can, you can see different crises all throughout your career or be exposed, but each one is unique, each one's different, and, uh, and the impact, uh, you know, the human impact is not lost on anyone. So right now, what I see is, you know, hopefully uh, we're coming out of the other end of this fairly soon, but, you, but again, with, the, with everything going on with the nature of the disease, we're not sure of what's going to happen, if there's going to be a, uh, you know, a recrudescence in the fall. But it's, it's one now where, it's, where it's, we're just kind of in a, a wait and see uh, to try to do the best that we can with the information we have. And uh, again, it's going to be, again, quite a recovery. Um, from the tenant standpoint, I mean, as the board of directors, what I'm seeing in the healthcare sector, um, interestingly and, and fortuitously, we just had the, the Q1 um, tenant earnings call and uh, just some of the actions that they were taking, how they're uh, responding to it and the impact that it's had just on the healthcare sector has been pretty, uh, pretty amazing, as you can as you can see in the news and and you know read with uh, what's going on with the with the company, and so it was uh, you know from that perspective you know just how they're trying to uh, maintain um, their services, maintain their profitability during all of this, and ensuring that they get the proper care to their to their people, to the of course the those suffering from from the disease, and then all of their other uh, patients and people that they're responsible for that they've kind of put on hold because of the requirement to have the elective procedure suspension, how they're going to work through that when we finally get on the other side. So Nadia, I mean, to that point, healthcare is definitely going through a, a leadership moment. Financially, health systems are feeling the pinch, as you mentioned, like tenant. Um, I think we're going to see health insurers feel a similar pinch next year as uh, membership shifts and uh, they start to lose some of the valuable commercial membership that they have today. Um, but also on the front lines, we have physicians and nurses and respiratory therapists and medical assistants and all sorts of people helping patients in a situation that's scary, that puts their own health at risk, that may put them in a place where they don't have 
enough equipment or the right kind of equipment and doing things that they've never had to do before. You have spent literally all of your career thinking about how to lead people um, and doing things that others haven't done before. Uh, you were a three-star general. You were the highest ranking woman ever to have graduated from West Point. What, what advice do you have for healthcare leaders and how do you, how do you think about this leadership moment when you know, they may be simultaneously having to tell some people they don't have jobs for them and motivate people who are afraid to keep going to work? Well, that's a, that's a great question, and, and it's really important during this time. You know, leadership is key. And, uh, and when, when people sometimes ask, well, who are the leaders? And really, uh, leaders can be up and down an organization from the very frontline person. Um, you're a leader, even if you don't have anyone that you're in charge of, um, but you, by your actions, are, you know, could, could be leading people yourself. Because what is leadership is more than like motivating someone to, or motivating a, a person or a team to accomplish a mission. First, you have to really clearly articulate what the mission is. So they have to understand what it is that you're asking them to do. And, and you as a leader have to make sure that they have the skill to do it. So you, you have to ask them to do something. You have to be sure that you've given them the resources and, the, and are asking them to do something that's within their scope within their um, understanding, if at all possible. Sometimes if an emergency, you might ask someone to do something they're not familiar with, but then you just get them to, you know, try to get them to, to do that the very best that you can. So it's telling them what the mission is, making sure that they are, they are prepared for it. And then you also have to, you know, make sure that you care about your people because the, one of the most important traits of a leader is, is empathy. And it's, it's funny when people think of that, um, and, and most of our military leaders will tell you that, you don't think of that as army, you know, kind of hua folks that, you know, empathy, but you do, you have to care about your soldiers and those that you lead, and not just fake care, you have to really care and learn about them. So I think if, and if people know that you care about them, then they are willing to do whatever they can for you. So you have to first clearly articulate what you're wanting them to do. You have to know who your team is and who your people are. So get to know them in, in good times. Um, and so they know that your intentions are pure and that you really just want to get the mission done, and you, but you don't want to put them at risk if you can at all um, avoid it. You know, in the military, that's hard because you might ask a soldier to go do something where they might get injured or killed. Uh, but they realize, they understand what the mission is, they understand that you as a leader care about them and would not ask them to do that unless it was absolutely necessary for the mission at hand. And then also as a leader, you have to be transparent and, and communicate with your team. Um, you have to tell them what's going on. Like you mentioned, if you have to lay someone off, you have to be able to tell them and be honest and explain and provide as much information as you can as to the why. And then if possible, be prepared to help them through that, to say, okay, we're going to have to lay you off, but we're going to keep your benefits going as much as we can. We'll bring you back if we can. And, and you know, don't make false promises, but just be clear, make sure that they clearly understand um, what they what they are. So you have to be transparent as a leader. And then you as a leader have to be above reproach in your actions, your words, your deeds. You know, leadership is really a, uh, in the military anyway, it's a solemn responsibility. Those who violate that responsibility are usually um, dealt with in a manner that's appropriate because you are given the, you know, the solemn responsibility to take care of others. And so you shouldn't violate that. So articulate the mission, um, care about your people, be transparent in your communication and, and give them uh, the resources that they need and be a, a good example yourself um, as a 
uh, an ethical leader. I mean, the, the caring part of that is really thought-provoking for me because I suspect many of us have this image of the army that it's literally command and control and people just do what you tell them and you issue orders. And um, I've heard many CEOs and senior leaders in industry say that they wish people would just do what they told them. Um, and they use, they use the military as an example of that. But you're saying that even, even in, a, in an environment in which you can give those direct orders, that you actually have to lead with, with caring and empathy, not with orders. Can you say a little bit more about that and, and how that might compare to this kind of popular conception of the Army? Absolutely. Um, one of the, and I, I can't remember the, the leader, it was, a, it was a, you know, like not a medical uh, military person, but it was actually an infantry um, general who said, you know, soldiering is an affair of the heart. And, you know, you wouldn't think that from a, you know, like I said, a rough, tough, kick down doors, uh, you know, airdrop into a, 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 you know, a hot zone type of thing. That doesn't sound very hua, right? But soldiering is a fair, because you have to love your soldiers. And, um, you know, not in a creepy way, you have to love your soldiers as the people that they are, to see them as people. And I can tell you the feeling that you get when you are looking at the faces of the young, and for me, they were very young, looked like little kids, you know, 18, 19, 20-year-olds, even some of the older ones who are in an all-volunteer force. I mean, everyone that's on active duty now is pretty much in the volunteer phase. So no one was drafted. No one was forced to serve. They all chose to serve. So number one, you've got people who made the commitment. They held their hand up and said, I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. They said that of their own free will. So now you've got to you know, appreciate that. And they come in all types. And not to say everything's perfect and everyone's you know, wonderful and no troublemakers at all. Everybody's a good guy. No, you've got a cross-section of society. But the one thing they did is at least they chose to serve. And so getting to know them, getting to know what motivates them, you have to have empathy and you, you can't just force it. You can learn it though. Um, so a lot of people say, well, how do you, what do you do? You say, I'm gonna be empathetic today. No, you take time to learn about your people. Um, if, if you look at our, our army, it's very diverse. You've got people from all you know, racial, racial backgrounds. You've got different nationalities, different religious beliefs. You've got a real diverse pot of people. When you see a group of soldiers, I mean, when you pan through it, they, it's, it's really a neat thing to see because they're all different, but we are all the same when we have the uniform and the U.S. flag on our shoulder. So I would never know how it's, what it's like to be an Asian American male, because I'm not one, will never be one, but I can learn about what is it that motivates you, what are some of the things that I should understand about you and your culture. And again, no, everyone's not homogeneous, so he doesn't, or he would not represent all Asian American mailed, but you can try to learn about what uh, motivates them, what's important to them, and then you can understand what, you know, how to reach them and to, to get them on board, or how do you explain what you're asking them to do as a, as a leader. And so, yes, you do have the ability to order people, but usually you never get to that point because they understand. I mean, you give them an order saying, hey, okay, I want you to take the hospital and set it up over there and put the ambulance exchange point here. So, yes, that's an order but you're just telling them, here's what I need to do. If you have to yell and scream and say, soldier, I want you to do this, this, and this, they'll do it, but first of all, is it necessary? And that's what's called toxic leadership. In fact, you know, it's not just a military term, but we have our toxic leaders in the, in the military, and they sometimes they're successful, um, but the, the collateral damage that they leave is, is sad because some soldiers will get out uh, because they said, hey, I don't want to, I didn't sign up for this kind of thing. Not that they don't they, they don't care about the danger. They care about being treated with dignity and respect. 
So even within the military ranks, you have to treat people. You can tell them what to do, uh, but if they know if you care about them and treat them with dignity and respect, no matter if they're a private captain or a lieutenant colonel, no matter their rank, if they know that they're valuable people and valuable members of the team that contribute at their level, they will do anything that you ask them to do. And I've seen that uh, over and over again. Two reasons why a person won't do something, it's either they don't have the skill or the will. And um, I'm just simplifying it. So if they yeah. don't have the skill, that's, that's the problem of the leadership because we shouldn't have put them in a position where they didn't have that. And we can send them to the school and get them the training. If they don't have the will, then you can, ask, you, can, you can try to figure out what's the reason why you don't want to do this. Are you, you know, lack of motivation? Are you sick? Are you injured? Are you worried about your family? Are you, is there something going on in your life that makes you distracted? Or are you just contrarian, hardhead, and you don't want to do it? <laughs> and, right. and then you can either... And then the sergeant major will come around and talk to you and say, hey, you know, maybe we can, we can have a discussion on what we can do to help you. And then sometimes if they just don't want to do it, then, then you have to say maybe you shouldn't be on our team. And there's other ways of doing that. But not after, not right away. You have to try to get to them first. So, so that perception of, you know, military that you see in movies, you know, all right, you know, recruits do this, that, and the other. There's some of that in basic, you know, that's kind of one to build your toughness and your resilience, but not to the point they don't hit you or, you know, demean you or insult you. They better not anyway. But that's kind of the, the way I think, you know, with leadership, you know, the, the empathy piece, even in something as hierarchical and, um, you know, with the command and control that you would, you would think that you have in the military. Dignity and respect trumps, you know, treating people, you know, just ordering people around. Like I said, they'll do it, but in, in a pinch, they may not. You know what I'm saying? If it's yeah. like, hey, you know, you want, you want me to go here? You, I don't think so. But so that makes a big difference of how you lead people. As you say that, I think about, you know, people I lead and people who've, who've been leaders to me. And that uh, completely resonates that when they, when they know me and they try to operate through influence rather than authority, they get a lot farther. What about the, the other sort of side of leadership? So that's, you know, that, that's an approach that really matters for leading people who are on the front lines and, and doing the work of, in this case, taking care of people across the country and around the world. But leaders right now are also having to make some really difficult higher level trade-offs. So who in a resource limited situation might get access to care or access to access to the kinds of treatments that they need. I think about some of the decisions being made in Italy uh, over the past few months, or um, thinking about which members of their team might get exposed uh, more to the coronavirus than others, or even policymakers who are having to make trade-offs between public health and economic health. How, as a leader, do you think about those big decisions? And you know, do you have any examples of those kinds of decisions that you had to make when you were when you were in the army yeah so that's those are those are very really hard decisions i mean those are some that the leaders have to make um on a daily basis you know the military you know even in the in the medical system what they tell us is by the time a decision has come to me uh, when i was the surgeon general all the easy decisions were already made now these are the really tough ones right because my my lower level um, commanders or leaders have made the decisions that were fairly straightforward and so then it comes to the, to the leader where the buck stops to say, okay, we are going to close this facility um, and we're going to, and several people in this region are, are going to be, you know, have a diminished access to care. Their alternatives are going to be less convenient for them. They're going to have to go farther to get care or they just may not have this at all and they have to be, you know, evacuated to another place to get it. 
So those are decisions, you know, and, and I can give you, here's, a, here's one example I think that would be really, really uh, a good one, similar to, to what's going on now, but the Ebola crisis in 2014. I happened to be the joint staff surgeon, which, was, which is a position where you're the medical advisor to the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So at the time, it was General Martin Dempsey. Before things got really, you know, to the point where it was a, a kind of a crisis, endemic there in Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. There was, you know, my, my job was to see the medical intel, what are, what are, what's going on in the globe that might um, have military relevance in the future. So I was hearing about Doctors Without Borders, things like that, uh, concerns coming, a lot of the physicians, healthcare providers in the, um, those three countries I mentioned that were dying. And so no question, nothing was requested yet, but I, I briefed the chairman. I said, sir, this is something you may want to take a look at, you know, nothing, no one's being asked, military is not being asked to do anything now, but just in case. And, you know, he could have easily said, well, it's not our job. Um, we really don't need to do that um, right now. Because um, just think that the chairman is worried about all the combatant commands right. all throughout the world. And so he put together a team to say, what can we do if asked? And sure enough, this probably about four months, five, six months later, the, the call came, hey, can the military help us with this? And so just working through the solutions of what we could do, because they wanted to um, have military, you know, come in and help treat, you know, bring, bring the combat support hospitals, which really were appropriate capabilities. They didn't need trauma surgery. They needed just, you know, supportive care for the, for the, for the dying. So he had to weigh, okay, I'm being asked to send America's sons and daughters, soldiers, to a zone where there's a disease that has a very high rate. You know, how would I be able to justify doing that when that's really quote not quote unquote our mission, you know, technically when you've got other things, other areas of people that can do that. So he actually put together a task force. So when you're when you're faced with a decision that's hard, make sure you get input from as many people as you can that are experts in their area and get some contrarians. Because he put together this big panel of folks. He had, you know, the CDC, you know, NIH, some academic folks from different academic areas, and even some folks that were kind of military contrarians about and I won't say anti-military, but you know, the role of the military, what they should do, what they shouldn't. So he was hearing all parts to get thoughts of what we could do to assist what was appropriate, what would help. And then, of course, you had the congressional concern saying, hey, we're not going to, can't, we can't afford to send military folks over there if we're going to be doing something else in a, you know, that kinetic action somewhere that we need them for. So that was a, that's a heck of a decision that he had to make. And so based upon his putting together this panel of teams, he, he said, here are things we can do. What are we good at as military? We're good at logistics. We're good at, you know, tra transporting a lot of stuff very quickly uh, with our Air Force. We're able to train in mass. I mean, in the Army, there's 10,000 new trainees a month. So we can train the, the population, just the basics. And so that's kind of the things where, you know, making hard decisions of where you put the resources and then being transparent. You have to be transparent because if people think that you're doing something that's unsavory or not in a fair manner, then you, you'll have lost the, lost the day. And so, you know, for that, that was one of the things where you, did, you had to make sure that the Liberian population did not think we were doing something that was not supportive of them. Because again, rumors that were thinking, okay, where this disease come from, or the military's coming, are they going to do this? And so, so all those things that you had to make sure that you were very transparent in your in your discussions and your decisions, as, as well as you could be for 
for for an understanding. I don't know if that if that hit that point or not, but yeah, absolutely. And any any lessons learned from that, or more broadly from the Ebola crisis that you think are applicable now? I, I think the lessons learned are you really have to again dignity and respect go. Um, if you put have that in the back of your mind, no matter who you deal with, you have to you know realize the dignity of a person and that they deserve respect, no matter where they are, who they're where they're from. Because there were some concerns among the Liberian population, there were a lot of rumors that the disease was caused by, you know, Westerners coming in because they yeah. wanted to harvest the organs. I mean, all these, all these things. And so, all those conspiracy people, theories. Yeah. Yes, there were. That comes from, you know, a history of being treated like less than human. Right. It's like, first of all, we're over here with this disease, and since it's not impacting you, you don't care about us. And then all of a sudden, you're now you're coming. But putting people think respect, make sure that you understand, again, empathy. What are the culturally appropriate things to do? I mean, there was a lot of criticisms on their burial practices, a lot of criticisms on a lot of different things. And so, you know, when you, when you, they, there was a course that I, I was listening to that talked about, you know, kind of exoticizing these things. But these are people who they bury their dead in a certain way because they were exposed to the bodily fluids. And that's why they, it was, that was passed. There's a way that you can try to teach people while not insulting or trying to denigrate them. And so I think the lessons learned, and not that any of our soldiers or folks were doing that, it's just, you know, that's the after, the after action report from, you know, the Doctors Without Borders and a lot of things. It's just making sure that you, again, treat people with dignity and respect yeah. and, you know, uh, make sure that they are part of the solution as well. When you come in and say, hey, we're here to help you, and they, we were invited in, so President Surly invited them. So it's not that we just went over there, you know, without an invitation, of course. So just realize that, you know, respect the people that you're, you're assisting. I think that's one that... Yeah, uh, I mean, it, it's, it's the parallels to, to the coronavirus now, to me, are quite striking. I, I think about even on a very small level here in San Francisco, where I live, when, when people were just becoming aware of the coronavirus, um, business in Chinatown, for example, went down to nearly nothing. And, you know, obviously there's no scientific basis for that. And you were no more likely to, to get the disease in Chinatown than anywhere else. But there's a certain amount of bias that I think is human nature that we actually have to fight. As a, as a leader, how do you train people around that kind of bias or, or help them, them have that dignity that they want to have for other people? Yeah, that's, and that's a hard one, isn't it? Because, again, human nature, that's just, that's just the way, unfortunately, we are. There's the scapegoating of different individuals. I mean, we've seen it up and down our history of the United States, you know, different groups. You know, when the Italians came over, the Irish, you know, no, you name it. There was a time, and of course, with the, you know, with African-Americans, the, you know, during the slave, there's always throughout history kind of categorizing groups of people. I think it's one where, you know, as I was mentioning before, the diversity of the military just, and, and we have in the military diversity training. And so we yeah. have observances. And I know a lot of companies in the, and actually throughout the U.S. we do. Certain months are dedicated to um, different groups to learn about different groups. But we do that more than just once a month or once a year for, you know, Asian American or the, all the different observances. We actually do that on a routine daily basis because we have to work side by side and you have to rely on the person. You might have to rely on the person to your left who is nothing like you to save your life in a firefight. So you have to learn about that. So I think, again, trying to deal with people one-on-one -on -one instead of groups like those people, 
Um, I, I give the example, my dad joined the Army in 1939 when it was segregated, and they sent all the colored troops to Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And the cadre there, the, the cadre who trained it were all, all white. And initially they thought it was a punishment tour. It's like, why do we have to train these people? And so, but my dad said he noticed that as he was, as they were working with him one-on-one and teaching them how to march, teaching them how to fire a weapon, all the things that they teach soldiers, they realize, hey, they're just like us. And they became more, you know, again, it's empathetic. And they, at the end, it wasn't those people. It's, these are my soldiers. And yep. just to, you know, it wasn't all perfect and wonderful, but, you know, it's, you know, he saw it himself and he stayed for 33 years. So clearly he loved the organization. So I think that's the one is you just have to train people to treat people like individuals and not try to categorize them in, in groups. I mean, that's very Pollyannish, I guess, but I've seen it, you know, in my career as a military, because, you know, and again, it's kind of like some of my best friends, but, you know, some of my, you, you know, you don't even, you don't even think about what they are it, but in, in race, and I'll give you another real quick story. My husband, um, African-American, you know, uh, and clearly it's, it's no question of what he is as far as, as how he looks. And there was a question once about um, one of the, he was stationed at a, you know, a base in Colorado and, uh, and, a, and a request came down that they wanted all the African-American field grade officers to go to a meeting because they're trying to figure out why so many of the, uh, the black soldiers are getting out. So the battalion commander, and Don was his executive officer, was sitting right next to him. And so he, he was saying, he goes, well, we don't have any, we don't have any black soldiers. We don't have any in our thing. Everybody was looking at him. They thought he was being funny. And they and <laughs> looked at Don, and he was kind of like, and he goes, you know, I guess you are, but I never look at you like that. And he wasn't trying to be funny. It's just like, you know, I, I never thought of him that way. And so, and that was genuine. He said it was genuine. He wasn't being, you know, funny. And he said, I'm sorry, Don, I just don't think of you like that. And, uh, but yeah, you, you definitely need to have you go to the meeting. But so that's where we want to get in this world where we don't even, we don't even think about that as what a person's categorized. That was just his XO, his executive officer. Yeah, you're my XO. I didn't think you were my black XO. You're just my XO. There's, there's a lot to be said for working side by side with somebody. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I'll stop. I'll keep going. I told you. you, gotta, you gotta no, keep going. Now. I got to tell you, I, lo- I love these stories. Um, and I think it's one thing to be, to, to talk about leadership theory, but you've lived it and your dad lived it. And, um, you know, it's clear, it's clear you had to figure this out. And I think that's part of what's, what's so inspiring. Not if, if I may, you have moved on to the next phase of your career. You are uh, back to being a civilian. You're on the board at Tenet. How do you think about your role as a board member broadly in terms of conveying these leadership lessons, but especially in a time of COVID, you know, it's a very different kind of leadership to be on a board. It's collective leadership. It's a lot more influence rather than authority. And you're really working through, in this case, um, Ron, your CEO. How have you translated it and how have you had to adjust? Yeah, it's one where, um, you know, in the decision to join a board, I I really didn't know anything about board membership or, or that I would even want to do something like that because, you know, my Again, it's those stereotypes. When you think of what boards are, you think of, you know, the movies where people are in smoking cigars and dimly lit rooms, you know, yep. having all that you see. And so it was an eye-opener for me. Again, you learn something every day about what, what you can do and to influence. So I was very careful to choose boards where I wanted to make sure that I could make a difference. It wasn't just about, okay, let me just hop on as many boards as I can. Um, I just wanted to say, okay, what, what are they doing? What is it about their culture? And where can I make a difference? And so, you know, Tenet was one that really kind of resonated with, 
you know, here's someone that, you know, he was turning the company around and, and taking it in a direction to try to give the best care, you know, that they could in, um, to, to the most people. So it was one where I liked their mission. I liked their vision. I liked the culture of how they took care of people. And so that's why I joined the board to see how I, if I could lend any of my experience to that. The difference is, is they always say board members, you know, it's like uh, eyes in, fingers out. Yeah. You know, it's really, you know, coming from a position where you are in charge of things. It's different when you are now allowing others to, you know, not allowing, but, you know, they, they're leading and you're just basically there to try to provide some, you know, guidance or information on what you've learned. And then also, again, making sure it gets our fiduciary responsibility to make sure that things are are, are going the, the you know, way that they're supposed to and meeting all the regulations and, and, and things of that nature. So that's been the difference, of, you know, when you're kind of hands-on. But to be honest, in my last job, when you have 130,000 folks, you're not going to be hands-on. So I had a second tier of general officers that, that led in a regional capacity. And so I was more of an still in charge and could, you know, tell them what to do if need be. And of course, had to make the hard decisions. But uh, they were actually, they had the leeway to run their areas as they saw fit based upon my vision, you know, how they should take care of people. And so what I've seen in this board, really the, it reminds me a lot of the military of what I've been used to because Ron really did a phenomenal job, in my opinion, of, you know, uh, preparing the organization. So he was really in the, in the uh, you know, kind of in the preparation role, what's the best thing to do to get prepared before this even happened. And once it did, he rapidly established those procedures, established the, the you know the task force within the within tenant to get after it. So it wasn't kind of like wringing of hands. They just got after it. They just went to work and said, "This is what we need to do." Let's just they, do this. Pardon? Let's just do this. Yeah. Let's, let's do it. So you know, some of the action they started. You know, in mid February, they uh, began acquiring additional because they saw the handwriting and all. They had a ventilator management system that they set up. They really had uh, a way to redistribute amongst all their, you know, their, their nationwide. So uh, a clear national rapid resupply distribution plan. So this is almost like a military operation of some of the things that they, they did. And then all of it, of course, they were taking care of their people. And that was one of those things that really, again, it resonated with me, like taking care of your soldiers you know, how do we best take care of our individuals? We know that there are people that are going to be in harm's way, so to speak. And so how do we make sure that they've got the equipment they need, the protection that they need? And that was their, um, you know, that was their, their primary goal. And so that's one where it was really great to see. Of course, it's a business and they have a responsibility to shareholders and, and stakeholders. So yes, of course, but it's not, you know, that's not the first thought of, hey, what are we going to do with this? It's like, how do we take care of our people? How do we make sure that we can maintain, you know, what we need to do? And um, how do we influence the, uh, the different administrative actions that were being taken by the various states? Kind of like I was telling you about General Dempsey, getting enough people that have, you know, expertise to be able to help you make a decision. So someone from the healthcare sector, governor, you know, mayor, whatever the level, right. this is what the impact is. This is what it means. And here's some of the things that we could recommend. And so it could be like, oh, okay, that makes sense. So that's kind of good to see. And as board members, it's important for the communication, like I said, the transparency and communication so we can provide whatever guidance or, you know, assistance we can. And so we've had multiple 
ad hoc meetings. Um, we get updates all the time from Ron and his team. So he's got a team set up that's looking at all the, the different areas and, and keeping us informed of what's happening, especially in this time where, you know, elective procedures were suspended. Uh, the impact of that, not only on their ability to generate revenue, I mean, that's, that's a fact. It's not, you know, that, that's yeah, going to happen. But what is the impact? Yeah. What is this more? What's the impact on our patients and people who rely on that? And how are we going to get back the backlog of, you know, um, and as, as everyone on the on the line knows that are healthcare executives, when people heard elective, I think the lay person thinks elective procedures are like cosmetic procedures. But a breast biopsy of a lump, that's elective. A colonoscopy is elective. But if you've got a strong family history of, of colon cancer or you've got an increasing lump, that could be life-threatening eventually, not right away. It's not yeah. like a trauma, but so those are some of the things I think that they looked at and now they're like, how are we going to reestablish and get after and prioritize? And so they're really looking at it holistically and, and not just, again, wringing of hands because, you know, it'd be easy to do. No one's telling us what to do, what's happening, you know. So you just get after and start doing the best that you can within the limits of the information you have. Similar to military operation, you get disconnected from your higher headquarters you have to know what the marching orders are, what the mission is, and you need to accomplish it to the best of your ability with the resources that you have. And hope that you are you understand your commander's intent and that you are executing it to the best of your ability without guidance if you don't have that ability to get further clarification. Go with what you got. That's kind of what we're in now. That is exactly what we're in. So. Nadia, switching gears a little bit and thinking about you, you had a distinguished military career, but you've still got many years ahead of you. What's next for you? Where are you headed? Well, thanks for that uh, assessment of distinguished and, and, and Lord willing, I have many years. Uh, <laughs> but I think whatever, what's next is, is trying to make sure that I can continue to make a difference. I have been so richly blessed with the ability to serve in an organization for over 40 years, the, the military, the army, that, and then in the medical profession in the army. So what a great opportunity. So my job, my whole career was to take care of those people and their families who decided they want to serve their nation and potentially give their life for it. What, a, what an honor to be able to do that. And so I want to be able to continue serving where I can in organizations where I can to teach to teach younger folks to any of the stories that, that I have, and then to continue to serve. I mean, there are a couple of nonprofit boards I'm also on that I'm, you know, I work with. My my faith background is I'm Roman Catholic, so I, I you know, am working with the church, our, my, our local church. And um, before the COVID, I was teaching fourth grade catechism, and that was a lot of fun. That's oh, that's <laughs> great. I won't ask. I won't ask so, you who's harder to lead, fourth graders or soldiers. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's, uh, it's a lot of fun. No, because it's it's one where you know, hey, but don't laugh. My my husband had the second graders, and so <laughs> that was really that was really. And he's he's former military, so sometimes he'd just say, okay, let's let's do jumping jacks, everybody, you know. <laughs> and they thought this is great fun, but you know, <laughs> it's one way to get the energy out of them. But no, it's funny. But yeah, it's uh, wherever I can serve and lead, um, you know, uh, I'm I'm uh, honored to be able to do it. That's terrific. Well, I'm excited to see what comes next. As we close here, I'll ask you the question that I ask everybody who joins us. Nadia West, you've had many, many views of the American healthcare system. You led military healthcare. You're on the board at Tenet. You're a physician yourself. If you had all the time, money, influence in the world, what's the one thing you would do uh, to make healthcare better? Um, I would uh, ensure access 
to everyone. I mean, that sounds very world, world peace and, and world hunger, but literally access to those uh, individuals that are, that are not, that, that aren't able to get a, you know, that are healthcare deserts in some places. I live in the DC area. There's some places where, you know, you think in the nation's capital, but there are people that really don't have access to healthcare. I'm, you know, very spoiled being in the military. We had wonderful access to care. I think COVID is uncovering some of the disparities in, you know, the, the uh, fatality rate amongst different demographics. And I think if I had, you know, if I were, you know, clean for a day, I would say, you know, we need to fix, you know, getting access to high quality health care to everyone. And they, so they're treated like dignity and respect, with dignity and respect. So they feel, hey, I, I, am, I am wanted at this health care organization. They want to yeah. see me. It's not that, hey, okay, here's a, here's a clinic, come in here. So everyone feels that they are important, their lives are important, their health is important. And, um, and then they can be, uh, have access to all the great care that we have that everyone in our nation of needs has. Yeah, now we have to include everybody in the system. Well, General Nadia West, thank you for your service. Thank you for uh, inspiring me, and I think inspiring many of our listeners today. I'm grateful for the conversation and grateful that you're out there helping make American healthcare better. So thank you very much. Well, hey, thanks, Sam. I appreciate the opportunity. Make sure you stay safe and well. Absolutely, you too. The Oliver Wyman Health Podcast is brought to you by the global management consulting firm, Oliver Wyman. If you enjoyed today's show, we invite you to subscribe so you'll be notified whenever a new episode goes live. For more information, follow us on Twitter at OWHealthEditor and visit our online healthcare publication, Oliver Wyman Health at health.oliverwyman.com. Thanks. We'll see you next time.